today i think we'll go ahead and start i don't think it'll hurt too much on people showing up for the live stream and it is an unusual live stream because it's a friday we got blood and guts today guys so i expect a big turnout within the first 10-15 minutes as people come in they see the uh, title of today's episode the collapse in front of our eyes and what we're going to be talking about today and i use this analogy a lot because it's the best analogy I have for the things that are going on in the world. I think society as a whole is at, at any given point in time kind of open to the idea that there could be an Armageddon, an end of the world as we know it, something like that that happens. And they have been seduced by Hollywood to believe that it will come in the form of, I don't know, everybody gets nuked. And unfortunately, that's a possibility. I don't think the probability is as high as people make it out. But the idiots running our country seem to keep slowly inching up that probability or they think it'll be an economic collapse, which I don't think they're wrong about in, in, in any way, except it won't be the only problem, but yet they see it as kind of like a movie where, or, you know, Patriots to come and collapse the prepper porn novel or something where everything's kind of hunky dory one day and plus to some major event pushes it over the edge or there's some sort of uh, contagion. They even made a movie called that, you know, a, a, a pandemic that's not a scandemic. Like, the one that was real, and like this thing comes and it overnight, people are just dropping over dead. And it's, you know, something with an infection fatality rate of a neighborhood of 10, 15%. That would be devastating beyond words. And all these things could happen, but they're not highly probabilistic. And so I'm going to borrow from Hollywood to counter Hollywood with another analogy. And that is, if you've ever watched Star Trek or any of these sci-fi things in space, there's this running idea that a ship, if we had the capability to do interstellar travel, could get within what's known as the event horizon of a black hole. And if that ship just kind of edged it, it would actually begin to follow the curved gravitational space without at first even knowing it was of that event horizon. And since it would have now entered a place where, you know, since it can absorb light and light can't escape, well, matter's not getting out either. It's the ant in the ant line hole, except it doesn't know it. And unlike the ant that might get out, it ain't getting out. And at first, no one really notices. And then all of a sudden, some members of the crew are like, hey, I think there's a problem here. This little indicator light doesn't ever come on. And it's coming on like my daddy's 77 Ford T-Bird. And a Captain, maybe, no, it's okay. It's okay. So you got some people that start to sound the alarm. And, and then everybody's trying to keep the crew calm. And then eventually, it's like, well, wait a minute. There is something wrong. Well, let's get the hell out of here. Warp 10. Let's go. And it, it, you don't go. And go around a ring like a toilet bowl or something. And at that point, it's kind of too late. And what's really happening, in theory anyway, with black holes, is the matter is actually being stretched out like a thread. And by the eventual reality is that giant starship is going to be uh, you know, 100,000 kilometer long or longer thread, the diameter of your hair on your head. 
and it will slowly just completely contribute to the mass of the black hole and help suck in more matter. But the entire time that they were out on the outer edge, everything seemed normal, even though some people were saying, hey, we got some indicator lights here. Well, there's an awful lot of people on this spaceship Earth screaming, hey, there's a bunch of indicator lights going on. But the senior officers seem to be saying, don't worry about it. It's all okay. We'll just print some more money and fix it. Now, when you're going into a black hole, you can print all the dadgone money you want, and you can't buy your way out of a black hole. What we're looking at is an economic resource and human resources black hole. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we dig deep into that, I want to just remind you guys about something. Some I don't push real hard anymore. The Member Support Brigade. I have this program. You can become a paying member supporting this show. It's 50 bucks a year. All you got to do to join is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members and sign up. When you click on members, you'll see all these companies that do discounts for you. And if you use those discounts, well, you'll get your money back. And that way you can make sure that this show is always here so that you can rely on us like you have for 15 years of being around since the beginning anyway. Because it is the way that we pay the bills. There's a lot of other little things we do to make some little streams of income here, but Without MSB, there is no survival podcast. So if you value this content, be, content, consider becoming a member. And again, when you do, just know you'll get your money back. I built that system to be regenerative. I figure even if you don't like me, if you use a dadgone discount, you might stay a member forever. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and, and, and dig into this. I want to start off with <clears throat> what we're talking about today isn't something that we've never talked about before. And the most direct correlation that goes back as far as possible goes back 13 years right now. Back on March 31st, 2010, I did episode 410 of the Survival Podcast. To put that in perspective, today's episode 3,335. So this is sub-500 episodes. And the show was called The Death of the Neighborhood. And what it was really about is the death of the suburbs as a failed experiment and how suburbs fall apart. Now, much more recently, just a little less than a year ago, on August 24, 2022, I did an episode with a gentleman named Chuck Marone of strongtowns.org. We talked about a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about today. I will tell you at some point today where I disagree with Chuck uh, and where I agree, I'll kind of tell you a lot about, but I'm going to give him credit because some of the things he said in that episode, even though I won't be moving to you know, the inner city of Memphis anytime soon to build a strong town, um, but some of the things he said in there really they that went in my head, it stuck to all the stuff I talked about 13 years ago. And it allowed me to start seeing things being said by other people in a totally different way. And of all places... The catalyst for this show today came from TikTok, and it came from a podcast group called, uh, what is it, Barn Barn Talk. Barn Talk. I assume they're, they're podcasters uh, based on their TikTok. I haven't actually looked up their, their, their podcast yet. Uh, don't judge this dude if you're watching the video right now and you see his face. Stopping a video in pause always results in... Uh, well, not so great photograph. He just happened to be talking right there. If you're seeing the video, you know what I mean. If you're listening to audio, it won't matter. Anyway, they're actually talking here about the need for more plumbers. 
But they're talking about it in the context of the concept that, you know, the average farmer is 66, 68 years old. And that's a well-known fact in agricultural circles and the problems that that uh, creates. Let's go ahead and listen. This is only about 50 seconds long. And I'm going to come back and use this is the way that we talk about where this problem is headed for us in America. Average age of plumbers. It's a lot like the average age of farmers. Yeah, 60s. Yeah, we've had the pleasure of buying a lot of old properties in our little town. And what you find is when you start thinking about the volume of housing in any given community and what the average age of the plumbing and the septic and everything that's in it, that's going to go bad if it hasn't gone bad. And usually it goes bad after we buy it, <laughs> it seems like. But I think we're no different than anybody else. No, no. And then you think of the plumbing, heating, cooling yep, business the envelope. Yep. and fewer and fewer and fewer people doing it. I feel like we're headed, like we're if we're not already there, I imagine in some cities we are there, that it's like a crisis level of doesn't matter what you're going to charge. There's yeah, not enough yeah. people to do the job. All right, guys. So I think that this is a problem not limited to plumbers and farmers. Um, I think this is a problem that is what I was talking about when I said a human resources uh, crisis or human resource uh, shortage, or maybe it's a peak uh, peak reality of human resources. And I know what you're thinking. Well, Jack, have you seen the unemployment rate? It's really low. There's lots of jobs out there. There's still people looking for jobs. So what's the problem? Well, peak's the top of the bell curve. It's when you're circling the black hole, but you think you're going straight. You're following the curve space and you don't know you're trapped. Because what comes on the other side of the peak? The fall. But I don't think there is a human resource shortage of people to sit at desks, to run spreadsheets, to do marketing analysis. I don't think that shortage really exists, programmers, et cetera. And it's the place where automation is getting rid of jobs. So the people that have those jobs, knowledge workers, are the people that will be most hit as in the early days as AI continues to roll out and, and take over jobs and other issues within the tech space. The tech Companies have been laying people off, not because they're so far, not because they're replacing people with AI yet, though they are beginning to do that now. But these layoffs preceded that. And what has happened is a lot of these tech companies have realized this huge growth that they've experienced over the last 30 years has created very fat, lazy organizations. So there's a lot of people that work in these giant buildings with these beautiful cafeterias and break rooms with Enya music playing in the background and masseuses and all this shit that like Google and Microsoft and Twitter, well, Twitter had. Um, in an environment like that, hiring managers just always want to hire more people and it's growth and growth is good, right? We've got to have growth. As long as you got growth, it's good. And growth of employee headcount has been considered good in the tech space. There's been this giant faucet of money. And when you have that and, no company's immune to this. Back when I worked with Neil and we were new, we were heading into the 08 recession, which I totally told you guys about if you were listening back then. And we analyzed our own company, which was a much smaller company. Now, when I say much smaller, and you've heard me in the talk, past talk about having about 2,500 contractors in the field, you might say that's not small. 
Well, those contractors were not overhead. A contractor, we were only paying a contractor when they were deployed to a client. Contractor was a resource, an asset, an income source. Those people did not cost us any money because when we sold their labor to a client, they were covered. Travel was covered. Everything was covered. The organization itself was about 40 full-time employees. And when we knew that crisis was coming, we put our recruiters through hell and let that solve its own problem. We put them through retraining. We put them under analysis. We gave them quotas. We had them do more reporting than they were used to. Uh, and, and some of them didn't make it. And that was fine. That's how that was going to work. And a recruiter, as long as you manage them right, also paid for themselves. But the whole rest of the organization, well, we started asking, well, what exactly, remember in office space, what exactly does this person do? We ended up cutting about 15% of the workforce in total, which was a much higher percentage. It was closer to more like 30% of the non-recruiting workforce because we couldn't figure out what they did that we really needed done. And that was a pretty small organization. What do you think that looks like in an organization like Google or Microsoft? How many people like that do you think there are? Well, that's where this began as things tightened up and this money printing, not from the government, but from a tech company themselves. When you're selling software or you're selling advertising on a social media platform, when you're selling a tech that is non-physical, it's like printing money. Once you've developed it, it's infinite in deliverables. So when that starts to tighten, you start looking around and going, well, what, what, did, what is it you would say that you do here? So that's created this shortage in that kind of work. But at the same time, we, we don't have electricians coming into the trade faster than we have electricians leaving the trade. And you can do a lot of electrical design work with AI, but AI cannot install electric into your fuse box and add a circuit to your house. That's not a thing. AI is not capable of going to the sticks of a new build and running wire. It's not capable of doing drywall. It's not capable of doing plumbing work and pipe fitting. It's not capable of any of that. And when your house has a problem with one of those things, it can't fix that shit either. It might be able to tell you how to do it to a degree, but most people aren't going to do it because that's why we don't have people doing it. The first thing, nobody wants, and I'm not going to say nobody, but I'm saying a huge portion of this country, there's a group of, let's say, half of those people would never even consider it, even if they were going poor and somebody was offering them a job for $50,000 a year to start as a plumbing apprentice and within two years make eighty to 90000 a year. They still wouldn't do it. No job, about to be evicted. Somebody puts the offer in front of them, they would say no. It's about half. And you can guess which half I'm talking about for yourself. I'm not going to say it. So we don't have people to do a lot of this trade work. We don't have people that want to be carpenters, to want to be roofers, to want to put siding on houses, hang gutters on the sides of houses, fix cars. You know, there's a lot of uh, technology that's now integrated into vehicles, but when it comes to turning a nut or a bolt and busting your knuckles, it's what I did in the Army, it's not exactly a fun job. Now, some people like it, but we don't have mechanics coming in at a rate. We don't have pool repair technicians, not that that's a critical piece of infrastructure, but it shows the problem. 
We have a pool. I don't work on the pool. That was my deal with my wife. You want a pool, I would have a pond with catfish in it that I swam with the catfish. So you want a pool, then I'll pay for it, but you get people to take care of it, clean it, whatever, or you do it. I'm not touching it. That was my deal. And I've made, I've kept my part of the deal. So we have um, an older system that ran our pool, our filter system, and it needed to be replaced recently. And the gentleman that came out to do it actually was the owner of the company. And he said, I really shouldn't be doing this. I should be running my company, but I got to do it because I can't get help. And he told me a good pool repair tech can make eighty to $100,000 a year in this market right now. That's real money. It's not get rich and fly off to say what nail and never come back money, but it's real. That's real money. And he's looking at no degree required. Doesn't even give a shit if you have a high school diploma. You got a clean enough driving record that you can be insured. That's about all you need. And this guy will give you a job. Now you ain't going to make 80 out of the gate with no experience, but he said, you know, he'll pay him an hourly rate that, you know, through the summer anyway, it'll be about a $40,000 salary. They make it six months. He'll throw them on some incentive or whatever, and they can make eighty to a hundred thousand dollars a year, no problem. And he's like, I have to pay them that because once they're capable, if I don't pay them that, somebody else in the market will, and they'll leave. So it's not like I'm gonna pro- I'm gonna promise it and not do it because I can't afford not to do it because I can't serve my customers. Now, if you can't get a twenty-five year old kid to hold down a job making that kind of money working on pools. In a job that basically, once you know what you're doing, you're completely left alone. Where are we at with any kind of trade labor? And it's a multifaceted thing. Part of it is that the left has convinced society anything that you really need and can't afford as a human right and should be paid for for you. As a society as a whole, we have convinced most young people, you're dog shit if you don't go to college. Nobody goes to college and wants to work on pools. No one goes to college and then, like, I want to be a plumber. So people think that that work is beneath them. Then there's just straight up, you know, micro dirty jobs type thing. Like, there's certain jobs people just don't want to do, but sometimes that people find their way into it. But without the hunger and the hustle, because I'm telling you what, guys, when I was 24 years old, if somebody had offered me a job making 100 grand a year working on pools, it would have required dynamite to get me out of that. And I know inflation adjusted, it would have been more like 70 grand, 65 grand, because I'm old. But you still would have had to blow me out with dynamite. You would have to blow me out of that with dynamite. And I probably would have ended up running a damn company with, with 20 people working for me back then. If I even know, I didn't even know that was a thing. And that's part of this crisis, too. Young people don't know that these options exist. They don't know. They're not aware. The guy that I had, the, the young man that put gasoline in my diesel truck, Cody, when he was working for me, and he was he was so stressed about his SAT scores and his GPA and everything and getting into college. And I'm just looking at this kid going, this kid is not the kind of kid that's going to work out in college. When I told him that, there, that there, you could take welding uh, course for about six months and get certified as a welder, and with a year or two of experience and buy some of your own equipment, you can make 80 to 100 grand out in West Texas right now as a welder in the oil fields and the gas fields. He didn't know that was a thing. And I said, I'm not telling you to do that because, honestly, I don't think that that wasn't right for this boy either. I could see him burning his arm off with a torch. But there's probably something that you would be good at that you would enjoy that you can make a lot more money than you think you can. You should do some research. 
his parents got mad at me for telling him the truth. Because little Cody got to go to college, even though little Cody really, I don't think, ended up in college, honestly. I don't know what happened there. But we're hitting peak trade labor, farmers, electricians, plumbers. And when you start thinking about the way everything else comes into this, this is a big problem. So how do we get into this total financial catastrophe that we sit in right now? One is stupid mortgage policies led to a low-end building boom. Now, when I say low-end, I don't mean building project houses or tiny houses. I mean that the material used in the construction was as low-end as they could get away with to produce a house that looked nice. They created Walmart housing. And this was definitely going on in the 70s and 80s. But in the mid-90s, it picked up steam and it went crazy. They were slapping together stick-and-brick houses in a production level that no one's ever seen before. And I don't know if we'll ever see it again. It was crazy. I remember that right here in North Texas in the late 90s, I had a friend named Doug. And Doug was one of these serial entrepreneurs. He did a lot of things. And he built trailers for construction workers, like to carry the, the, and this is how I knew him. I was in directional boring back then. And so like trailers to tow a directional boring rig, instead of buying the trailer with the rig, you bought the rig and bought your own trailer and saved money. That was one of his things. He's like, I make all these trailers. And he realized I can make any trailer to do anything he wanted. He ended up building a couple trailers that were specifically set up and designed to carry around signs, kind of like political signs. But these signs were for telling you where to go look at, you know, model homes and new developments and stuff because the building boom got so stupid here that the cities were like, you can't just have signs everywhere. You can't do it. So they came up with a compromise because the builders were like, if we can't sell the house, we can't build the house and you won't get tax base. See how this all works is ass grabbing. So what the cities came up with is you can put the signs out around after 3 p.m. on Friday and they all have to be picked up after 5 p.m. on Sunday and no later than the next morning. So when the sun comes up, there better be no signs. So Doug built a couple trailers and started doing work for these people, and he would go put up a couple thousand signs every weekend and take them back down on Sunday. And that's how crazy the building boom was. And this is the important, and this is what comes from my conversation with Chuck Marone from Strongtowns. These houses are built in such a way that they literally start to fall apart at about 20 to 25 years. The roof needs to be replaced. The siding needs to be replaced. The plumbing starts to go to shit. The foundation starts to sink into the ground. Because when you build anything like that, and it's something that is basically, you know, as your shelter... The entire outside is exposed to the heat, the cold, the wind, the rain, the hail. And then the insides, you know, not, not, and I'm talking about the part you live in, but the inside of the walls have a degradation that, that begins on them. And then just your action of using the home, right? And if people did little bits of maintenance all the way through, but we know people don't. Now, what's interesting about this, the big boom being in the mid-90s into the early aughts, that puts these homes are at an average age right now of 18 to 28 years old. They're falling apart. And how do we build subdivisions? Do we build a house and then five years later, somebody else builds a house? So this is how it was prior to the 50s in the suburban boom. People would move into a place, buy a piece of land, build a house. 
That's how it works. That's not how it works, is it? A developer comes in, develops a couple square miles. All the houses are built within two to three years of each other and sold off like hotcakes. So what does that mean? It means the siding, the roofing, the foundation, all the shit breaks at the same time. Everybody begins to go into decline, and then the entire neighborhood goes into decline. And this is what I was talking about 13 years ago in episode 410. Once that neighborhood goes into decline, the rats start jumping off the ship. It goes from an ownership neighborhood first to a rental neighborhood, then a declining rental neighborhood, and then an abandoned neighborhood. And you can see this all across America, especially toward the inner cities and out toward the outer rural suburbs. We drove through places when we went to Florida and we went to Tennessee, et cetera, where you could you take some of the state highways instead of the interstate to see more. And you come to this town and you look around and you go, you know what? There used to really be a thriving community here. And the downtown area is dilapidated. It's got gangs hanging out. It's like, what are you guys gang controlling? Because there's nothing here. There's no money here to have your gang warfares over. But they got nothing else to do. Um, one of my best friends and I went up to Tennessee for a thing a few years ago. And we were on our way back. And we were in the part of Arkansas between Little Rock and, and Memphis, Tennessee. And we were tired. We'd been, we got stuck behind some shit. We had planned on getting a hotel in Little Rock. We got to the point where, you know, where your eyes are burning and you need to quit. And we found this town and there was a hotel there and it was kind of sketchy, but we're two guys. So, you know, we basically set, slept with our Second Amendment security blankets right up by our, our heads the whole night. Um, but the town, it's, there was a decent bar. It's a really cool bar. Uh, we almost stopped there the last time we went past it again, just for memory. Cause it was a really cool, it was like we walked into 1985 with this bar and it was like a speakeasy in the back of the hotel. It was the only good thing about the place, but we could tell there used to be something there. So we decided, well, now that we're settled in, let's take a drive. Actually it was the next morning. Cause yeah, we were done when we got there. We had a few drinks and we went to sleep and uh, tried not to let the crack party. I mean, literal crack party two doors down, keep us awake. The next day, we, we get in a truck. Before we leave, we kind of drive around the place, and we find this warehouse, and I, I think it was multiple warehouses, an industrial area. And they're building an Amazon shipping center about 10 miles away from me right now, and it's an enormous building. This looked like five of those, and there wasn't a single thing happening there. Whatever it was, it all died at the same time. And the whole town died around it, and everybody left. That's happened over and over and over again. And it's now happening, like, when people see, if you look at, like, the imagery that I used for the thumbnail today, like, it looks old, and people are like, well, that's just what happens. But then they look at all these, you know, all these houses built, like, by Choice and D.R. Horton and all this shit, all these nice, new, pretty houses and these nice communities with a nice, pretty front, you know, postage stamp yard with the grass service and all around it. And they think, well, that'll never happen here. Well, that's what everybody thought about all those houses that were built in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And it did. And it will. And it is. And it's happening right now. The difference is when we built a house 50 years ago, it had a life expectancy before it really started to fall apart and need major repairs of about 50 years. When we built houses 25 years ago, 
They were built with a 25-year mindset. What does that mean? Anybody out there not too corrupted in the brain by Common Core Math to be able to figure that out? That means the 50-year-old houses and the 25-year-old houses are falling in on themselves at the same time. Now, when I say falling in, I don't mean collapsing. I mean all kinds of shit's going on where a homeowner finally gets to the point of, I can't do this. I can't keep throwing money into this house. They fix it up just enough to sell it off to the next guy. And you eventually run out of that, and that's when it turns into a rental property and then an abandoned property. And then the whole neighborhood goes to shit. This is happening everywhere right now. Um, most modern roofs, siding, HVAC systems, etc. 25 years is maximum. So, you know, my son's dealing with this right now. He's had like just one thing after another with his house. He'll be all right, but it's very stressful, even though he's he can handle it. There's a lot of people that it hits their breaking point. The difference with him is he's not stupid. He was raised right, and he didn't buy what the bank said he could afford. Well, now we're getting to a point where what he bought cost twice what he paid for it like eight years ago, six years ago, I think, actually. And so what do you choose? Now the, the, the new homeowner has no choice. It's, it's, it's just, you know, and, and, and Michelle 770, 1776 is saying broken window syndrome. And it's the truth. Like once one house goes to shit in a neighborhood, if nothing's done about it, a second one will. Once two go, four will. Once four go, eight will. Once eight go in a, sub, in a subdivision, it's gone. It's gone. And you get to the point where you can't afford to fix it because everything happens at once. And then the government has put all these restrictions in where a lot of these places where it's really hitting critical mass right now, like Seattle and Portland and all these leftist cities, they can't sublet a property or something like that. They can't they can't do anything. They can't like put a tiny home in and then rent that to somebody or rent the upstairs because they don't want too many people living in the subdivision. Well, they end up with nobody living. And this was all forestalled a little bit by the big boom that happened around COVID and the moving and stuff. But now we're seeing the results of it. And then on top of all this, we have this radical shift, like I said, in the attitude people have about blue collar work, which means there's less blue collar workers. And that, by its own definition, means that the work itself costs more. The materials cost more due to inflation, right? The materials cost more due to inflation, but the labor costs more, not just due to inflation, but due to supply and demand. If there's 10% less plumbers and 20% more demand for plumbing work, then the cost of plumbing labor goes up because as a business owner, pricing is how I say no. That's something that people that don't own a business do not understand. Why is why are you so expensive? If my If I'm running a business... And my business is doing well. If my trucks roll out every day, bill get paid and come back. And my trucks roll every day and I still have business I can't do. The most logical and economically sensible thing for me to do is raise my price until my trucks still roll every day. And I turn down or put off one or two jobs a day and that's it. I want to keep raising my price until people go somewhere else, and yet I still have 100% uh, labor running. So in every trade, that's going to happen. In addition to the cost of the materials, the labor goes up because I don't, if I have more work than I can handle, 
then I'm going to raise my price. I'm not going to hire another person when I can't find another person. So while everything's caving in on itself, and again, I don't mean your house literally falling down. I mean, I need to fix $25,000 in siding and roofing that I don't have. My plumbing's gone to shit. My HVAC system's barely getting by. And now all that material costs more. If I also just bought the damn house with current rates and I paid way too much for it and my payment's high, I'm in a bad way. And once this cancer starts in a neighborhood, it just keeps going. And on top of all this, we live in a sick society. And I don't mean mentally sick. Y'all know that's true. It's not what I'm talking about today. That's a symptom of a larger disease. I mean, physically, we are a sick society today. And I talk about this and people don't really understand what I mean when I say sick. And I'm going to use, and I know you guys are going to think, oh, he's going keto carnivore on us again. You know what? Not everybody's keto, keto and carnivore on the on the graphs that I'm showing if you're on the video to see him back when this was going on. This is just diabetes, 1980 to 2017. This is making no delineation between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And it is based on a percentage of the population, not total cases. So this is population adjusted. In 1980... Roughly 2.5% of people in the United States of America had been diagnosed with diabetes, type 1 or type 2, both combined. In 1980, the vast majority were people with type 1, which is a, a genetic condition. You don't get a choice if you have type 1 diabetes or not. Type 2 diabetes is a lifestyle illness it is not a physical condition in of itself. It is, it is, it should even be called diabetes. It has the same results, but it's really insulin resistance. Your body, a diabetic's body can't make insulin. A type two diabetic's body can make insulin. It keeps needing more and more to do the same work. It is a leading indication of health in the country. And if you look at the graph, I'm sure if I could hear you guys instead of you guys just hearing me, if you look at that graph and you understand what I'm saying, there was a collective, oh, that just went through the audience. All you guys all in your own places can't hear each other. But if you understand this graph and you look at this, your response should be, oh, this is bad. Now, there's a hundred other conditions we could look at that have this same bell curve. And I want you to understand, this is a modern society problem, this health condition. It is not limited to the United States. We talk a lot about the BRICS nations when we talk about economies here and how they are the growth uh, side of the, the global economic sector, and they are. They also are the growth sector for type 2 diabetes. What you're looking at now shows the BRICS nations, China, India, Brazil, Russia, and South Africa. And the, the graph really to look at, though, is the graph on the right, the B graph. The A graph is total number of cases. Well, it stands to reason that China's and India's would be really high. They have more people, okay? But if you look at the B graph, that's the percentage of the population. That's cases per 100,000. So it's not directly a percentage, but you can, it would, the graph on a percentage would look the same. It doesn't look much different on the growth scale, does it? Russia remains near the bottom of both graphs. It's at the bottom of the B graph, which is the more important graph. South Africa, I think, is 
so low in population versus the other countries, it looks artificially low in the A graph. That is an indication that everybody in all these countries is their health is getting worse. That's all I want. Like we have a declining standard of health in our country. It is directly related to diet, to, uh, to diet, to activity level, and to just the way people take care of themselves or actually fail to take care of themselves, lack of exercise, et cetera. And almost all that growth, because it's percentage based, is type two. It's almost 100%, a 100% avoidable condition. And I always have to catch myself when I say 100% of type 2 diabetes can be cured with diet and exercise alone. It's more like 99.99%. There are rare people that have a totally different situation. But it is, I've, I've heard from one that was able to prove it to me in 15 years of saying it. So I'll, I'll get, there's a unicorn or two out there. But the vast majority of this never had to happen. And it is done intentionally by the people that are behind the controls. They know what they're doing. And one of our folks is asking me right now, do you believe GMOs are a large part of this? I believe that GMOs are a part of it. I wouldn't say large in of itself. The prevalence of being able to grow GMO crops that are used to produce high-carbohydrate food at the levels we can today is why we have this epidemic specifically of diabetes. I think if you eat a lot of grain and you have a grain-based diet and you're also eating a lot of additional sugars and fats, right? Because when they make this correlation to meat, they never point out that the people that are eating lots of meat to get sick, all that meat and fat's doing is increasing their caloric levels. These people are also eating 400, 500 carbohydrates a day by gram. Right. So I think that it's contributed, but it's not it's not like if I feed you a carbohydrate based diet with lots of sugar and fat in it and I do the same to other people and they're non GMO that the non GMO ones are going to have less diabetes. You're both going to have a lot of diabetes. So that, that's what I think about that. Um, certainly think that the prevalence of spraying herbicides on the food that we eat because they've been GMO modified to not die when that happens. That's not good for our health. And that certainly is an aggravating circumstance. But overall, it's straight up diet. It's straight up diet. But how can you have a society not collapse when their health is declining at a rate like this? And the people that run that society, because remember, it's not your government. It's the money masters that run society. See the sickness as an asset because they make billions on it. Go, go work up the value of these lifestyle disease industries and ask yourself why anybody that was part of that industry would ever want to fix that problem. Cancer, heart disease, diabetes, kidney dialysis. Look at the growth of that industry. And it's almost direct. That growth correlates directly with type two diabetes. Not everybody on dialysis has type two diabetes, but the number of people needing dialysis is a fairly constant percentage of the population and then you jack on that diabetic. That's why I use that as a health indicator. So you have declining health of population in a human resource crisis, in a material crisis, with an economic crisis. You're starting to see how we have a problem yet. You start to see how no one can fix this. No one can fix this. The system will not allow for this to be fixed. You have to exit the system and fix it for yourself. And we'll get to that. Um, 
No one knows how to do anything. And when I say no one, remember, I'm not an absolutist ever. Only the Sith deal in absolutes, which I know is also an absolute. So it's kind of ironic. But what I mean is if you get, if you walk down the street, especially in the cities, and you gathered up 50 men in their 20s to 30s and said, how many of y'all would know what to do if the power went out in your house and you looked over and your neighbors on both sides of you had power. Most of them would say, oh, I know what to do. Call the power company. Now, a bunch of y'all, because y'all are not those people, are going, oh, my God, you're doing a double face palm, right? You go to your freaking breaker and see if one of the, you know, like, is it all the power? Is it the, ma- did something trip a breaker? Right? Did a GFI trip? Most of these people wouldn't know. That's about as simple as it gets. If you said, hey, can you give me the steps and procedure for changing the oil in a car? How do you change a car's oil? They don't know. What is the difference between fuel injection and carburation? They don't know. They don't have any idea. What would you do if your lawnmower wouldn't start? They don't know. They wouldn't know the first thing to check. Well, what do you mean not start? My question would be, what do you mean not start? Is it? Is it catching but not turning over? Is it not is it not catching at all? Like if it's not catching at all, first thing I'm looking at is the freaking spark plug connection. Is the is there a fuel switch? Is the fuel off? Like is it got gas in it? No, they don't know. They they might switch on to hey, is it got gas in it? If it's got gas in it, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to fix anything. If you handed them a roast and they wanted steaks. And I mean a trimmed roast. All they got to do to make steaks out of it, you want them a half inch, an inch, just start making cuts. You look at the end. I even know that's a rib, a rib, a ribeye. That's a ribeye. They don't know how to cut a roast into steaks. They couldn't gut a fish. How many, how many young women do you think would know how to darn a pair of socks or know what that even means? When I was in school in home ec, you learned how to darn socks. How many of you think understand that if you have a hole in a pair of pants, it's not really visible, that there are patches you can buy, and in 30 seconds, iron the patch on it and fix the pants instead of throw them away? Nobody knows how to do anything. This is the irony. Well, it's not their fault. It's not their fault. We didn't teach them. Hey, Gen X here, no one taught us shit. We figured stuff out. We didn't have any money. We wanted stuff. We dug through attics and, and cellars. We found our parents' old shit. We rigged it up. We fixed it, and we did everything we could with it. Somebody threw a bike out. It, it never got picked up by the trash, did it? Like, yeah, I'm going to do something with that. And we'd figure it out. Do you know what we have today? YouTube University. Nobody can do anything. But the information for how to do things is more available than it ever was, which means the problem is in education. It's apathy. Do you see when we start adding all this together, you start to see how I'm just going to say how fucked we are. Not just the United States, the developed world and the undeveloped world. When the developed world is screwed, they're screwed, too. There's some exceptions, but you know what I'm saying? Like the general person. We have massive problems. Um I think our biggest problem, to sum it all up, 
The average American, the average Westerner, the average developed nation human being today is domesticated. My dad used to tell me when I was like high school age that the goal of the elite was to fully domesticate the human man. That the women were already domesticated. They'd already been domesticated. But the man was remaining feral. And I thought my dad was retarded. I did. I just thought he was crazy. I don't think so anymore. Ironically, now he kind of has some crazy issues going on. Maybe it's just watching this shit happen and not being able to do anything about it, not having a way to process it. I don't know. But we've been domesticated, meaning that it's what I said earlier, like 50 percent of the country minimum feels that anything that they really need or really, 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 really want that they can't afford is a human right. And education is a human right. Healthcare is a human right. You know, everything income is a human right to these people. It's not enough to get everything for free. They also want universal basic income. And that's the oligarch solution to all this shit, by the way. All the automation, the lack of tech and all. I know we'll pay people to exist. Well, the oligarchs are like, well, if we do that, then when they print money to pay those people, those people have to buy shit. We're the oligarchs. They buy our shit. We get the money. What's the problem? And their case, the government is, hey, we fund your shit. We run your society. You have no choice. You have to do this. And our politicians are just smart enough to get elected and just stupid enough to buy into that. So they will put no check and balance on that whatsoever. It'll never happen. And they'll keep doing it till it reaches its obvious terminal result. Again, how deep of a shit are we in? When you start to just look, you don't have to like dig into a bunch of statistics. Everything I'm telling you, you can go out and observe in society if you feel like it. If you don't feel like it, you can look it up on the Internet and you can watch it all happening. The ship that we think is traveling in a general straight line is following the curved space created by the black hole. I'm sorry. I don't like being right about this. Somebody today, when I put up that this show was going to be what I was doing on social media, said, you know, over the last 10 years, I've watched what you said about the concept of downward class migration. And it has played out better than anything any financial analyst has said in the last 10 years. It's the most accurate thing on the Internet about the economy and the state of the world. And I said, yeah, that's another time being right sucks. I don't like being right about this. But it has played out exactly the way that I said. If you want, go on my channel and search the channel itself for downward class migration. And go. there's two videos I put out on it. They're at least 10 years old now. You're looking at it. It's here. It's here right now. And this is a huge part of it. Um, We have a domesticated population that's sick and in health decline. And on top of it, we have the inflation problem. And this is one of the least understood things in society is inflation. And it's intentional that it's misunderstood. And if you've never looked at it this way before, I'm going to have like when I pulled up the, the graph on diabetes, what do you see the next graph? So when we look at a graph of inflation and they know what they're doing when they put this graph in front of you, well, the people doing it don't know. They don't know anything. The people choosing the graph to give to the people that will put it in front of you, they know precisely what they're doing. They're doing the same thing that anybody ever had a sales or marketing job does when you have to go in front of the board, board of directors for a presentation at the end of the year. 
you get this is why I don't buy into all the graphs for like climate, you know, climate change and bullshit. You give me an Excel spreadsheet. You tell me what you want any statistics to say, and I'll make it look like that. I'll change the ratio. You want it to look like a very flat trend. I'll make it look flat. You want me to make it look dramatic. I'll make it look dramatic. That's not what was done with this graph. If you put this data in, there's only one kind of graph you're going to get, and it looks like this. And that's the fact that inflation is cumulative. So what they show you is, well, 8% inflation was really bad when, you know, first year that Brandon was in office. But now it's only four. Look how much it came down. It didn't come down. It didn't go down. The 8% inflation from the prior year didn't go away. Eight and four is, common core math, anyone? 12. Don't start drawing circles to figure it out. Eight plus four is 12, right? So now, what do you think inflation looks like? If we make it the way that it really is on a graph, cumulative, get ready to suck air in when you see this. That's inflation. That's inflation in the United States of America using their figures, and it's only through 2015. This, again, this is their figures. This is based on the CPI, Consumer Price Index. I call that the CP lie. That's because every time they don't like the inflation numbers, they just change things in the index. You know, it started out back when they were doing this stuff back in the 60s that they would put steak would be part of like food costs. And then we'll just change that to, you know, 10 years later, we'll just change it to like lower quality cuts of beef. And then we'll change it to ground beef. And then we'll change it to like ground turkey. And then they removed fuel and housing from the whole thing. So this doesn't include the cost of housing or the cost of energy, just the consumer goods that you buy. And inflation since 1910, when this graph starts between then and now, is 2,326.58%. But this is the scary part. If we go back to 1971... We all should know what happened in 1971. Inflation between 1971 and 19, well, 1913 is when the graph really starts. Federal Reserve Act was 306%. 1913 and 1971, some remnant of a gold standard, 300% inflation. Inflation between 1971 and 2015 from 300% to 23% hundred percent. This is the important thing if you're watching the video and you can see that graph. Once that curve turned up, do you notice how dramatically consistent it is when you look at it as cumulative inflation? It's a straight line. If you look at it between 1913 and about 19, let me see, I can't see that on that screen. Uh, up to about 1950, it kind of moves around a little bit. It actually went down during the Great Depression, and then it came up a little bit, and then it curved up a little harsher between about 60 and 71, but there was some variance in it. Once we went full boat fiat, it's a straight line up. Well, it's, not, it's angled. It's about, what is that, about 80 degrees, 75 degrees. So that means the future we know. It's that bad or it's worse. There's no there's no plan B. And the problem with that is there's no political solution. And we can't fix it with money. The money we have is broken. 
The system was broken by the money. More broken money can't fix a broken system. We can't buy our way out of this. If you get a, a kind of a hawkish Ron Paul leaning chairman of the Federal Reserve and SEC, if you get Rand Paul as president and he appoints his daddy as his advisor, that would be golden. We're still screwed. This can't be fixed. You can't fix a problem using the same logic you created it with. And this is what happened to us in the teens. We got to a place where we were coming to a reckoning with this stupidity in 08. And they said, I know, we'll lower interest rates and print more money. We'll take the very thing that caused the problem and do more of it, and that'll fix the problem. And it did. And every, every politician was happy to tell you about green shoots in the economy, how great things were, especially the orange man. You notice that if you look at that graph, let me pull it up again. You notice when the orange man took over and the economy was booming and everything was great and gas was cheap. You notice the inflation curve didn't change. Well, I guess it, it, that's not fair to Trump, is it? It ends in 2015, Jack. I'm sorry. But I promise you, if you go extrapolate this out, that graph doesn't change. Actually, it does. It stays just about the way that it is through the Trump years. And then when COVID's hit, it does this. And then it levels a little bit, but it doesn't even go back to the original curve. It's worse now than it was then. We can't fix it with money. You can't do it. If you print more money, you create more scarcity of all the things we need to fix it. If you want scarce resources, you have to, or you want, if you want uh, abundant resources, you need scarce money. Not a commercial for Bitcoin. But if you have another solution, you let me know. You let me know. I'm just telling you where we're at. So no political solution, no economic solution. What the hell do we do? How do, how do we deal with this? Like I said, we have to, you can't actually 100% separate from the system. Kelly is, Kelly's a good historian. Kelly S here says, Hey, at 229 Mix, some redneck hippie duck farmer said something about a fake recovery. Do you know what I said that we'd have this huge fake recovery and the end result of it would be worse than you could imagine? Before the recovery, not during the recovery. You go, in fact, it was before the full collapse was realized because everybody thinks 2008. Well, the, 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 the depths of the worst of the 08 recession, go look at the market, February 2009. February 2009 was kind of the bottom of the markets, and it was the bottom of everything. And then we started doing quantitative easing, and, and I came out with my video about downward class migration and all. And I said, before we hit the drop, I was saying, get out of the market. This is like August 2008, get out, get out, get out. I was saying that while I was driving my car doing this podcast in the very beginning. And I said, this isn't the end. There'll be opportunity here. We will come back in a raging recovery and it will be fake. And the recovery will be the death of us. Welcome to 2023. And I also said, what about COVID when COVID was raging? COVID is killing the dying. And I don't mean people. I meant Businesses, industries, societies, trends, market sectors, not just segments. Welcome to 2023. 
and American Legend says it's a disgrace. What a freaking joke of a system. Yes, you're getting it, though. The system is the problem. So you can't fix the system by trying to fix the system. If you have a flawed system, you remove the system and you replace it. It's fake. You're right. American Legend says also says, there you go. It's very fake. All this new fake money to prop up dead U.S. dollar. Yeah, on stilts. It is. It's you're, you're dead on. It's exactly what it is. It's fake. Everything about it was fake. It's fake productivity that makes people feel good. It's like taking someone that's got really bad cancer and they're going to die and they feel like absolute dog shit and you pump them up with drugs. Now, what do I think we should do in that situation? Exactly that. If you're going to die and you have terminal cancer and you can feel good with what they call palliative care because there's no other hope for you, we should absolutely do that. But imagine you take that person, pump them up with palliative care drugs. They feel good. And you say, you're cured now. Can't you tell that you're cured? You feel good. And they believe it. Now do that with 330 million Americans. That's what they've done. And they've done it enough times. They've given the drug dose enough times that people have an expectation the next time will work again. It'll be okay. False hope. But what do we know about being addicted to something? Each time you need more to get the same result. And eventually more is never enough. And your terminal. That's the economy. That's the resource economy. That's the, the, the health, like the health of the people, the health of the soil, all of it. So we have to separate where we can. We can't 100% separate. We're un- unfortunately, you know, clowns to the left of us, jokers to the right, stuck in the middle. Yeah. Well, we can get out of the cities. I've only said that since, well, forever. I honestly was saying that before there was a podcast. So that's more than 15 years. But I think when I say get out of the cities, there's a lot of people think they're out of the cities. Well, they're in the Beltway suburbs. How do you know if you're the like you can be in the Beltway suburb or you can be in the urban rural fringe and not in a suburb environment? Not the kind I'm talking about anyway. How do you know that? Well, if you can go out and stand with your back up against the sidewall of your house and spit a watermelon seed and hit your neighbor's house. And you can go to the other side of your house and do the same thing. And you're within, you know, daily commute, you know, out, uh, you know, daily commute distance from the urban center. You're in a beltway suburb. That's not the only way, you know, but if that's true, you are. You might be the same distance out and live in a place like I do. This is not a beltway suburb. If anybody has been here can tell you what I'm talking about. When you get in that high density area, you're getting into that place where when one house goes, they all go. Where the community goes, the whole thing goes. It all falls apart. If you go back and listen to that episode that I did all the way back in 2010, again, it's called The Death of the Neighborhood. There's a link in the audio notes for today's show. You'll hear me talk about a gorgeous, gated community with walking trails and parks and everything back in 2010. They were selling houses for $450,000 to working-class people, Outside of the Los Angeles area, it wasn't even a beltway suburb. It was a suburb that people were willing to drive that far to because housing got so stupid in California. And it turned into a complete shit show in a matter of a few years. It's just happening everywhere. doesn't matter. Leftist states, doesn't matter. Beltway suburbs, all built at the same time. All the houses will start to have problems at the same time. And the money and the labor's not there to fix them all. 
So they're going to fall in on themselves. Rural communities, if one house starts to get kind of screwed up, everybody notices it. And either they help it or they let it fall apart and then somebody buys it and, and, and co-ops it. Or someone new comes in. It's, it's doable. It's dealable with in that where we have, we don't have that uniformity of construction type and time. And pretty much everything built for the 1970s up till today has at best a life expectancy of about 30 years without major, major work. So you've got to get away from the places where everybody's kind of falling apart at the same time. That's just one reason. There's a lot of reasons, but you got to get out. you got to build local and virtual community like we've always said. I, I honestly, I know you guys sometimes get tired of hearing about Noster and Bitcoin and Zaps and all. But, you know, if there's a network of a million people, most of them are affluent with an integrated payments network, that might be where you want to do your networking, right? Especially if you have an uncensorable, ungovernable uh, society where you can, or community where you can, you cannot be censored in the content that you share and no one can get in the way of your ability to, to send and receive money with other people in that network. That might be a place to build your virtual network. Right now we have some well-meaning people in the TSP community. They want to build a new social networking platform that's uncensorable. Why? Build a Noster client. But you got to build real world handshake relationships around you as well. You got to do it. Um, there is an opportunity for strong towns like Chuck Mahone was talking about, but it, his model won't work, in my opinion. I could be wrong. Sometimes I am. But on this shit, I haven't been very wrong, have I? Um, this idea that we're going to like, move further into the urban centers with more high density and more shared resources. Maybe some people will pull it off. It isn't the way I want to live. And it, it just begs for people to control you and to end up gentrifying what you did to take it over. When you're out from those areas, it's a lot harder thing to control. That's why the goal of the people in this country is to force as many people into high-density population as possible. It's part of Agenda 2030, and it was part of Agenda 21 before they changed their name. That's a piece of it. But there's, there's so much financial incentive for this. Think about it as a company that wants to deliver a product or a service that's not digital. The closer all the people are together, I can get every, let's imagine if you were running a, a business like Amazon, you have warehouses. Why do you have warehouses? So all your shit's in one place. That way when somebody orders something, you pull it from that warehouse and you send it to them. What if you had to like, well, this one has to come from over here and this one has to come over here and this one has, that's kind of how Amazon was at the beginning before it got big enough to consolidate so much shit in one warehouse. That's how they send you something 24 hours after you order it or less. In some cases, it's 48 hours now with our expectation. Like, where's my shit? Three days? Are you crazy? Did anybody here old enough like me, you remember, like, seeing shit advertised on TV, and it was six to eight weeks for delivery? Right? There was an infomercial out. You had to pay up front. Six to eight weeks later, you get your shit, hopefully. Right? We're so spoiled that we don't remember that stuff. So, yeah, we, we have an opportunity for strong towns, but that model is their model for our control. Because just from a, just from a logistical standpoint, not even if you're like Dr. Evil, <laughs> $1 billion, like, no, 
just from a standpoint of if I'm shipping all my shit to one small area, how much easier is that for me? Use less energy, my global warming, all the ESG shit, all of it. Plus, if you're all in one place and you don't be good, we'll just turn off your stuff. Don't need to chip you now, do we? They just won't bring shit to where you are till you shut up and do what you're told. It is a mechanism of control. If you're a farmer and you farm animals, you don't want them just running all over the freaking place. You want to control them. So when it's time to eat, they eat. When they need medication, they get medication. When it's time to slaughter them, you slaughter them. That's you in a high-density population. Get out. And so I think that we need to build communities. And I think there's some things that need to, to happen if we're going to do that. I think the, the buildings themselves, we need to learn from what these other people did wrong. Housing became less and less a permanent thing and more and more a temporary thing. I'm not talking about time and location. I'm talking about they built houses knowing in 50 years this house won't be here or they'll, it'll be really like people will be pulling wire out of the walls. They built houses knowing that. That in 25 years, if there wasn't a lot of money invested in this thing, it was going to need a lot of money or wouldn't make 50. They knew this when they did it. They start, you know, we talk about in engineering planned obsolescence where they make a phone and they know that in three years the battery won't hold the charge anymore. And it didn't have to be that way. It didn't even cost that much less to do it. But they did it on purpose because they want to sell you the next phone. And they're not going to rely just on new features, especially as good as they've got now. You may not feel like you really need one, but if it doesn't work, you will. We built housing that way. We can't do that. If we start building our own physical communities, we have to build yeah, disposable culture. Area 69 says Dis disposable culture with disposable housing, with disposable health, with disposable food, with disposable soil. That's what we built. We can't follow that example. We need to build housing in such a way that you look at that and go, if nobody does anything to it except keep the trees from overgrowing it, it'll be there in 50 years and it'll still work. Maybe you have to fix a hole here or there to get some damage or something. But overall, like this is a permanent freaking thing. King of Biltong, thank you for the super chat. I'll read it since you threw me a super chat. Uh, hello, Jack. I was told to listen to your podcast. We are South African shop in Texas and manufacture Biltong. Check it out for survival foods if you have some time. Anton's in Roanoke. Dude, I don't know if you know about me, but I love some Biltong. Email me about that. Let's talk. Maybe we can do something to help each other, uh, but not here in live chat. But thank you so much for that super chat. Um, yeah, we need to be building long-term permanent and low to no debt in our building. We can't have huge leverage debt in building our dwellings, our homes, and our homesteads. We can't. Not especially now. Like The one debt I was always okay with for almost the entire time I did this podcast was debt on real property mortgages. You know why? Because when you get a mortgage for 3% or less, it's almost dumb to spend your own money. You're talking about 7% leverage on property. We can't afford it. We got to come up with ways to either not leverage debt to build and buy or to only borrow maybe half of what it takes to make the thing what it is. Disposable people, Builder of Castle says, exactly. Everything's disposable. We can't do that anymore. 
We also need, if we start doing this rural community thing, these systems, their local food production needs to be based on grazing systems for a huge variety of reasons. Economically, because it is incredibly nutrient-dense, low cost of production, and infinitely regenerative. And even if I didn't care about the environment, as a business model, that is the way that I would go. Here's what I mean. I love chickens and ducks. I do. Ducks and chickens, if you get the exact right situation, you can feed them very little inputs, but it's difficult. They are not the land foragers that ruminants are, like sheep and cattle, to a lesser degree, pork, but pork can be done with mass crops as a supplement, etc. These are things that can be done where we are not dependent on grains and feed stores. And this has to be part of any of this kind of rebuilding of society. And this is how you know that the people that are running things are not trying to solve the problems that they claim to be solved, wanting to solve. If you wanted to solve a global warming and you really believe it's because of the exhaust that comes out of a car, we need less CO2 in the environment and more environmentally sustainable and regenerative systems with more carbon sequestration. The first thing you would do is say, we have to stop farming soy and corn and shit at the level that we are. We have to start putting in lots of trees and we have to start growing grass and creating savanna-mimic ecosystems and rotationally grazing ruminants in leader-follower systems. And if we did that, if we did that, doing it with chickens, turkeys, ducks becomes infinitely easier because in a leader-follower system, we can further cut what we need to feed those animals. And we can start to get them to about 50 to 70% of land forage and only supplemental feed. We can feed rabbits, to be blunt, with a row of fodder trees and a bagging lawnmower 100%. And one family can raise all the protein that it needs just from that. I don't think that's the way I want to live, but the fact that you can tells you that's what we need to be doing. We need systems that are based on animals, and we need an animal-based diet because it is what is appropriate for us dietarily, ancestrally. And all you have to do is, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe about science, unless you're a young Earth Christian, and then I can't, I can't have this conversation with you. We can't, we're not, we're too far apart to have it. If you believe the Earth is four and a half billion years old, and you believe human beings have been on it for at least three hundred thousand years, and I do, I think the evidence does point to that. Then you have two hundred ninety thousand years of a hundred percent of the population of the planet living primarily on animals. That's it. That's the truth. That's how simple it is. None of these people don't know that. None of these people that claim the ocean is rising that have multi-million dollar estates 50 feet off the ocean, right? Like they have these, these giant mansions right on the beach. The oceans are rising. In 10 years, it's going to flood New York City. Then why do you have your house there? None of these people, now I'm not talking about the celebrities and all, none of these people behind all this shit don't know what I just told you is true. None of these people actually think cow farts are causing the earth to get hotter. And so from a standpoint of the, the, the environment, we need to do this. Restoring diversity in our ecosystem, everything gets better. But from a logistical standpoint, we can feed a town 
of a couple thousand people easily this way, prime like 90% of calories coming locally. In just about any decent climate, you ain't going to do it in the West Texas desert where the junk land is for $300 an acre. It's not going to happen there. Some things can be done there, but not this. But 90% of the country, we can do this. And so you need to look for the areas if you want to do this where it can be done. We, we have to have an attitude, too. You go to the place where you know the risks are the lowest of being interfered with government. You don't advertise, we're doing it and you can't stop us. But you do just do it. You're not like, hey, is it okay if we build a community of libertarian? Like, no. You do it. And you make it as defensible as possible. And this is why I think instead of trying to build giant communities, it makes a lot more sense to start building communities of 20, 30, 40 families at the most. And then you have nexuses of communities that are all close enough to interact with each other. And eventually, if you move enough people into an area like that, it's already low population. You can pretty much take over the county government. And I don't believe in government, but I believe in taking it over. That's a totally different thing. And you make the government in a county or at least a township to the point of where it's impotent as to interfering with the rights of people that live within it. Because all of these higher agencies, as you go from township to county, the county relies on the township, the cities, et cetera, and able to enforce its shit. You get to an entire county, the state relies on the county resources to enforce its shit. The federal government relies on local and state resources to enforce its federal shit. Most of the people that work for the FBI are not in the FBI. They're sheriff's deputies. They're local police. They're part of FBI task force. One of my relatives, my niece's husband, so my nephew-in-law, is a county sheriff working for the FBI on an FBI task force. He's been on FBI task force for years. He's on like his second or third task force now. He's not employed by the FBI, but he works for the FBI. You see how that works. They need the lower bodies of government to enforce their shit. So I think you kind of like it's like free state project, a totally different way at a lot smaller level, because all you have to do is find the place that's this close to where you want it to be already. And if you bring in that many people, you take everything over. It, it, it has to be done without asking permission, though. That's a long-term strategy. You just go do it. Um, the locations need to be kind of temperate climate, have water access, and very low, low regulation. So uh, there is this propensity of people that want to do this in the place with the least regulation and the cheapest land. Well, water is something that is like you got to solve that problem. And so the cheapest land with the lowest regulation I know of is in New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas. And none of it has water, and none of it has deep soils, and none of it you can really describe as temperate. That doesn't mean you can't live there, and some of you do, and you're mad at me right now. I'm saying if I'm coming out of the gate, and I know I'm going to move people to a location, and I'm going to try to create this little satellite community that doesn't give a shit about everybody else and make other ones around me, I want to do it where it's as easy and doable as possible, and it ain't where you are. I'm sorry, it's not. It's not. Now, there is something to be said for lack of regulations. 
there's something called the scale of permanence. And when you look at a scale of permanence, something like the geography or the climate is at the top of the scale of permanence. The mountain in your backyard on a scale of permanence of one to 10, which 10 is when all humans are gone, this thing will still be. That's a 10. That mountain is a 10. It takes a coal company to pull the top off the mountain to change it. And it's still a mountain. It's a sad mountain, but it's still a mountain. It's a 10 on the scale of one to 10. You know, what's like an eight and a half to a nine regulations. So those folks do have a point about regulations, but there's other places that are a little bit less hard and very low regulation. There's not a lot of these places though. They're all over, but the total amount of land that's available relatively affordable, low regulation, temperate climate that you can cherry pick is low and it will get lower. And the opportunity is closing. Doesn't mean it won't be there in five years. Just means it'll take a lot more to do it in five years than it does right now. I said, right when the whole COVID thing took off, and once I realized it was not going to be about how dangerous it was, it was going to be about what government could do to control things and how much money they could print and how they could use it to advance their agenda. Once I saw that that was the whole point of it, I said, get out, get out, get out. And if you don't get out in two or three years, you'll wish you did. If you want out, it will be, it will be twice as hard. Tell me it's not true. Tell me it wasn't infinitely easier to get out of a city and move out to a place like I'm talking about in 2018 than it is right now. Interest rates were more than half of what they are. The property cost was at least a third lower. You could easily sell your place in the city for more than you owed on it unless you only bought it yesterday. You can still do it, right? You can still do it, but it ain't as easy as it was. You think four more years of Brandon? Well, if the, you know, I don't think Brandon's got four more years. A year more of Brandon and three years of Kamala Harris, right? Do you think that would make it better? Do you think a Democratic coup where they install Gavin Newsom somehow because they know their problem is going to fix any of this shit and make it easier to get out? Do you think Return of the Orange Man, if some miracle happens, will fix it? Do you think Ron DeSantis will fix it? Who do you think can fix this? Who do you think will will, will at least... Write the ship enough, get it steered enough to the outer edge of the rim of the the the, uh, the event horizon of the black hole, where it'll go back to being like it was in 2017, 2018. If you have an answer for that, other than there isn't one, you live in fantasy freaking land. Now I got my TSP coffee cup. I was, Wondering if I had grabbed my unicorn coffee cup. You believe in the unicorn farting a rainbow and your uh, guardian angel sliding down the rainbow and granting you three wishes once a day. If you think there is a human that will fix this or make it easier to do what you need to do to deal with it. Every day it will get harder. And this brings me to something. A long time ago, I talked about building a community. We ended up giving it a try in a way that I really didn't mean when I first tried it. We called it Perma Ethos. It was, in my opinion, a failure, even though a lot of good did come from it. Um, and I think I went too big, too fast, and tried to do too many things. 
in my original idea. I am kicking around the idea of trying to build something like this again, and I'm thinking about it a totally different way this time. Um, there's a lot of land that meets the criteria that I'm talking about, and it would take some work to find the right place. But I'm seeing more like a 20-household community on like 50 acres. And of that 50 acres, like 25 to 30 of it being uh, community property. And I think I could do that with an entry price of about, and this is, you can't hold me to this, guys. But just running numbers, back of the sheet, I think I could do that for about 15000 an acre on a place like that. And 100% pay for the property and have some money for improvements. And I think there would also have to be, you know how I feel about homeowners associations and all. I think there would have to be something like that. But it wouldn't be for the purpose of telling people what they could and couldn't do. And with a charter, you'd make sure it couldn't tell people what they could and couldn't do. And any rules we thought the group going in would be small enough to come to an agreement, those rules would be like the – so it's called a uh, covenant, a homestead covenant that we like we had in, in uh, Arkansas at our place. There was like three rules. And, they, and the, the, the fourth rule was there shall be no more rules without a 100% consensus, in which case you wouldn't need the rule because everybody would agree. Um, but I think there has to be some sort of uh, maintenance budget to maintain that much land. And I think eventually like maybe that, maybe that goes away, but I could never say that that would happen because then I'm back in trouble with the SEC. Cause that's why the original idea didn't happen. I had a guy that worked for the SEC come up to me at a convention and say, if you do things the way you're saying, and by the way, I love what you're saying, but if you do it, they'll put you in federal prison. And there were people in this audience that said, Oh, just do it anyway. You're not the one going to get your donut hole pounded and club fed. I'm not doing this shit. Um, but I think there's a way to do this. If you have an interest in that at all, you know, if you think that that kind of an entry price makes sense, about 15000 for, and it, you got to understand this whole idea of acre. You're talking about community. You're talking about having a tremendous amount of land that's open for joint use. You don't need a lot of land. So it could be a three-quarter acre. It could be an acre. It all depends. When you start chopping land up, there's only certain places that are suitable for building, if you want to put in something like like surface water has to be part of this to be sustainable, it's something like that. But it's probably could work at about that number. It might be 20. You know, the more we charge per lot, the less total people on the land are necessary to fund everything. And I think smaller might be better here. Just a thought. No commitment to doing it yet. Just an idea. But it's something I have been unable to let go of as a vision. I will say one thing. It would it would be north central to northeastern Texas. If I can't get in my car at six o'clock in the morning and step foot on it by nine thirty, it would not work because it's my project. And I have to that having something in West Virginia really made it hard when we tried it before. Um, and again, we did it totally different. But this would be different. If you remember back when I was talking about it, this would not be a lease thing. You buy it, you own it. We break a piece off, it's yours. And I think there's some other things that need to be filled in. I'm going to talk to some people. But if you just would have an interest, let me know. Email TSPC in the subject line. And and what I mean by interest is you think the price is right, and you know you can come up with the money, or you're pretty sure you could anyway. I don't care how you get it, but it's it's not looky-loo. Anyway, just for me to gauge the idea. Anyway, final thoughts. And this is so important to understand. Our problems are created by printing money. 
every problem we have in society today is a fiat-based problem. A system where you can grow rapeseed and make billions of gallons of oil and stick it in bottles and feed the world with it is not possible in a non-fiat system. That's a fiat problem. A system that allow you to put a tasty cake in the hand of every American every day or a Krispy Kreme or something like that every day is a fiat system. These are fiat A system where you can have builders spit out Walmart construction level housing and a person who can afford it can still buy it and will is a fiat based system. This society is the, the end game of a fiat economy. And the people that really kicked it off back in 1913, do you think they care? They're dead. They're gone. They're dealing with whatever justice or lack of justice exists on the other side. They're either asleep forever and never coming back or they're in some other life. They don't care. They don't care. It didn't. And when they did it, even though they knew, oh, maybe it's got a hundred years or so in it. You don't care. If I came to your house, you had something broken, you needed it fixed, and you're a 60-year-old man, and I said, well, if I fix it, it's good for at least 40 years. It'll be cheap, and it'll be good for 40 years. What do you say? <laughs> do it. Well, in you know, 40 years, I don't care. I'll be dead, or I won't know who I am. I don't care. I'll be 100 years old. I don't care. 40 years is good. 20 years for most people, that I'll worry about it again in 20 years. So the people that did this, they knew it was finite. They didn't care. They figured, That's my great-grandkids' time. They'll figure out what to do. Here we are. Your great and great-great-grandparents' generation did this. They set it in motion. Your grandparents' generation, or for some of you that are really young, your great-grandparents' generation kicked it up a notch in, in the 30s and in the 70s. They decided... We'll kick that can and future generations, will, they'll have technology and all kinds of shit and they'll figure out what to do with it. That day is here. Welcome to reality. And so what you have to give up on is the idea that some magic somewhere will fix this because it won't. It's going to be painful and it's going to hurt. It's also going to be full of what? Opportunity. Opportunity. Shifts, crisis, all of those things are full of opportunity. If you go, what do I do? I'm young. I would start taking up a really in-demand, high-paying, blue-collar trade if I didn't want to do something in the professional space. In fact, if I was a young person right now, I would be far more inclined to go into a, a difficult, if not impossible, to automate out trade right now then I would be to go into something like a knowledge worker position, even though it's easier and better money and it's what your mommy wants. Because I'm telling you, for every 10 lawyers that are busy right now, there'll be two that are busy in the next five years. Teachers, screwed. Screwed. Education system is screwed. All of the knowledge worker positions Anything that doesn't require any sweat at all, and some that does, is screwed. Engineers, screwed. Especially programmers, coders, screwed. Does that mean all of them are screwed when I say that? No. What I mean is the sector is screwed. If I go from needing 10 programmers 
for my company to needing two, do you think I'm going to keep the other eight employed because I'm a nice guy? Even if my company makes a lot, a lot of money, isn't there a point where I, I look at my organization and go, what is it that you would say that you do here? And when the person goes, I talk to the customers, they're fired. And unless your plan is to get hit by a truck and win a lawsuit, you better find a new plan. And I think that first plan is not very good. So we need to focus on learning how to do things again. We need to educate our children, and we need to invest in long-term resources. We need to think totally different about money in the economy. You notice I didn't say get rid of all your fiat and go 100% on Bitcoin. I'm not that person. There is a there is a time before the ship stretches out in the spaghetti. And during that stretch out period, fiat's important. It's a part of what we do. If you don't have any Bitcoin, though, you don't have enough Bitcoin. If you have Bitcoin, you probably don't have enough Bitcoin. That's all I'll say about that. This is the finite resource that limits the infinite. infinite. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to talk much about that here as we wrap up because it's Probably going to be part of a Bitcoin breakout next week, but I do want you to think about that. There's a lot of things in the tech space that are infinite. You might be like, what? How about spam through automation? How many spam bots can I unleash in 10 minutes? You might say, well, it's not really infinite, but there's no real limit on it. Well, if to do things costs energy because it takes energy, and I make you pay for it with something that comes from energy like Bitcoin, all of a sudden the thing that was infinite is limited by the finite. Just just a little thing to put a, a bug in your ear there, because that's how everything works. No matter how unlimited something looks, it's limited by the finite. Why is there actually a limit on money printing? Inflation! Stop. Stop. Stop giving a surface-level answer. Start looking at this the way a true Bible scholar looks at the Bible, especially an Old Testament uh, you know, Jewish scholar. Re- reads any part of the Torah and says, well, this is, this is how it's taught in Sunday school. This is the deeper meaning. So on a deeper meaning, why can't we just keep printing more money? And when you say inflation, you're at the surface you're giving the right answer, but not the real answer. Why inflation? Why does inflation happen? Because the money is being spent on something finite. If it's plumbing work, there's only so many plumbers. There's also only so many pipes. There's only so many fittings. There is a finite amount of supply of labor and product. So an infinite supply of money creates a scarcity. So in the end, what really happens is the finite nature of the resource, the thing that is finite, limits the thing that is infinite. Theoretically, there is no limit to how much money the United States Federal Reserve can create. They can create $100 trillion tomorrow if they want to. It's literally a journal entry. It is one person typing an entry into a computer can create $100 trillion tomorrow. What limits that ability? The finite nature of labor and material. Give everybody a trillion dollars. You know what a trillion dollars is worth? Five bucks. That's what happens. 
the finite limits the infinite, and the infinite must be limited by the finite. There's no one that's a grown-up in the room and in charge and able to make any decisions right now who is willing to face that reality, run with that reality, and start rebuilding the society that we've already collapsed. It's already... How... Does anybody not understand this? I don't know, other than I know how people's brains are programmed. The society collapse that you're expecting is already here. It's just, it's like a slow motion when you see like a car wreck in a TV show and the, the, the car starts caving in and the person's in the seat and they just started to move. It's like that, but that head's going through the windshield and the crash has already happened. How do you have a society? With millions of type 2 diabetics and say it has the health of the society hasn't collapsed. Why? Because some people are still alive and healthy. The overall, how do you have a society where the number one export by tonnage annually is fertile topsoil down the rivers and through the air into the oceans? And you can't say that the, 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 the arable land of the system has not collapsed. How do you have a society where no one knows how to do anything and not say the intellectual capital of the society has collapsed? How do you have a society where people think they're smart because they got a good grade on a test, but they can barely function enough to change a freaking light bulb? Can't, guys can't ask a woman out with any level of confidence, right? Hey, would you like to go have a drink? That's impossible. If they're afraid they're going to offend them, people don't know what gender they are. It's one thing to be gay or like to dress like a woman, but you should know you're a dude or you should know you're a woman. You should at least know that. They don't even know what they are. You can't have that unless your society has already collapsed. You have a literal invasion of France from northern Africa happening right now. Your media won't even talk about it. There's there's places in France right now that look a lot worse than the than the front lines of some of the parts of the war in the Russo-Ukraine war right now. Have you seen it? You might see a little article here. It ain't on TV, though, is it? It ain't main. It ain't above the fold like they used to say when there's print media. It just ignore it because it's the plan. How can you have a system where you can literally look at Germany and Holland, Netherlands, France, Belgium, the whole EU, up into UK, etc. And you can literally forecast they will have absolutely no livestock production at all within 10 years, if you haven't already collapsed. You're doing it to yourself on purpose, and people are letting it happen. People are cheering it on, because the intellectual and moral decay is through the roof and the collapses here. We have to get out of the way. We have to get out of the way. The, the apocalypse that you've been waiting for has been going on for 20 years. You're staring at the center of it. And expect this. It's a hurricane with a great big eye. Very soon, you'll, you'll be in the eye. Somehow, I can't tell you exactly how yet, but somehow, Things will look better for a while. The backside of the eye wall is coming. If you get an opportunity 
to improve your situation in that eye, do it. Do it. Build something. See the opportunity in the chaos. See the opportunity in the destruction. You know, look at it this way. Do for good what the oligarchs and the money printers do for evil. You look and you see a a society of fat, out-of-shape people on dialysis, and you think, oh, my God, what a tragedy. This doesn't have to be. But what do you think the oligarchs see? Holy shit, we can put a dialysis clinic next to every McDonald's. What a great opportunity because they're evil pricks. There's going to be people. There's going to be people that want those solutions. Build them and make them available. I'll take one question. I got a couple starts, so I'll check that too. Um, can I can't really read that name. 221 says, what do you think about RFK Jr.'s position on BTC? Will become BTC, will BTC become an election issue? A very small one right now. Um, RFK is a politician and an extreme leftist liberal. RFK has said that people that don't believe in climate change belong in jail. RFK is complete dog shit on the Second Amendment, and his out now is, well, we can't change it because of a Supreme Court decision, which I never trust any politician with. He is a flaming liberal, and I think the, the most likely thing to come from his candidacy is an announcement of running as an independent to keep Joe Biden in office, which would be the result because there's no Democrats that are going to vote for him. He's, he's a great Democrat, and the Democrats hate him because he's good on one issue, one real issue. And that's pharmaceutical. He's actually deep. If you take the global warming out, he's actually really good on environmental, too. The guy actually has a lot to. I'll say good things about somebody, even if I don't like him. Right. Um, He has a lot to do with cleaning up the water systems and what have you in, in the northeastern United States. All the damage done by the coal companies and all. I will give him that. But I don't want him as president. I know that wasn't your question, but. The only reason he's talking about Bitcoin, he doesn't give two flying shits about Bitcoin. But his people running his campaign said, hey, this is an attention-grabbing issue that you won't actually have to do anything with, and it won't hurt you because the people that don't like it already hate you. That's all that was. Um, DeSantis is like, yeah, sort of kind of on Bitcoin. Biden doesn't even know what it is. He doesn't know how it works. And his administration is not friendly to it. Trump hates it, by the way, even though his wife's selling freaking NFTs with shit coins attached to him. Um, Trump's like, I prefer the good old dollar. Right. So like there's not it, 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 I think it will be. But I don't think this cycle, it certainly won't be at that level. You have politicians. you got to understand they're very skilled at this. They cherry pick the things they choose to talk about based on them being just enough to push the 2% from the middle over to their side. So the politicians that are pro-Bitcoin, most of them aren't pro-Bitcoin. Their campaign committees looked at the demographics where they're running for election and said, this is a winning take for you. It won't cost you much, and it'll gain X. So I don't think it'll be a big election issue. There's not enough people that understand it and care about it yet. As a Bitcoiner and you start to build community around you on Bitcoin, you feel like 
there's a lot of us and there's millions of us, but we're still a tiny number. That's part of why it's a good investment still. It really is. It's not an investment. Okay, that's fine. You believe that. And you keep doing what you, you do, and I'll keep doing what I do. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed today's show. It is a Friday, Friday, Friday. It is time for me to check out and enjoy my weekend. I hope you do the same. I got some projects on the docket. Most of them are indoors this time of year because it's about 100,000 bazillion degrees outside. I will throw out with this one more time. There is one ticket left to the, to the party. And uh, if you want a, a, a pair of tickets because you want to bring your, your spouse or something like that, I will make one more ticket if you buy the last one. So there'll be a link in the show notes today. Anyway, with that, I uh, I, I need to, to, to cut out. I appreciate y'all. I will catch you with another one. I hope today didn't get you down. There is immense opportunity in this. But your opportunity can come amid building a joyous life or while being in a lot of pain. It's up to you. Get your mind right. Get your diet right. Get your body right, get your attitude right, get your preps right, make shit happen. Get shit done is one thing, but make shit happen when you're getting shit done. With that, I'll catch you on Monday with another episode. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.